Luke chapter 16 from verse 1 down to verse 15. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. He that is Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we have opened your word, that you would open our hearts and incline our hearts to your testimonies, that we may hear and receive them by faith, the words of your loving instruction. We ask that your spirit would be the preacher, the voice whom we hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All throughout the Bible, we are given many warnings against all kinds of spiritual dangers and pitfalls that the Christian faces in this life. But at the top of that list, by far, just based on the sheer frequency and intensity of the warnings, is the warning against the danger of money, wealth, and possessions. We see Jesus addressing this in the Gospels over and over again. We saw this earlier in chapter 12 as he said, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so here we see the matter addressed again here in chapter 16, and we'll continue to see more of it in the chapters to come. Now there's a reason why Jesus talks about the danger of money and materialism so much. It's because it single-handedly has the potential to destroy souls that were otherwise staying the course 
faithfully. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now what Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy turned out to be a tragic prophecy because in his second letter to Timothy, he mentions in his closing of that letter that Demas, who was Paul's faithful companion who was with him when he wrote Colossians and wrote Philemon, that same Demas ended up deserting Paul. Why? Because as Paul says, that Demas was in love with this present world. The love of money and worldly treasures is a pernicious danger because it falsely promises us security outside of Christ. The feeling of self-sufficiency which makes us drift away from humble dependence on the Lord and the sensation of power and control by which we deify ourselves. It's a temptation never to be underestimated and always to be guarded against. But how do we best do that? I ask this because many times it seems that the assumption is that the godly Christian response toward money is to avoid it as much as possible. I mean, of course, the main issue is that far too many Christians are in love with money. They hold on to it very tightly, and so they need to come to an honest confession and repentance of it, laying it down at the feet of Christ. But I'm talking about for those who sincerely seek to honor the Lord and they see the ugliness of being enslaved to earthly riches. It feels as if sometimes that the only viable strategy to battle against the love of money is to stay away from it and to have as little to do with it as possible. But that's actually not what God calls us to do. Uh, That's a very fearful and paralyzing way to live you're stuck playing only defense with no offense allowed hands tied behind your back and constantly running away from the boogeyman that is money no the way to not be mastered by money is to master it and to actively subdue it and to bring it to its knees to serve christ your master in other words God is is calling his people not to ignore money, but to invest it into things that will last unto eternity and reap all the returns in eternity. You see, it's not that God is opposed to riches, as if depriving us is what pleases him. No, he's the one who has given to us through Christ the riches of, of his glorious inheritance in the saints, Ephesians 1. You cannot imagine the kind of riches that God desires for his people to enjoy. God does want you to be rich, but with true riches that are permanent, everlasting, that will last forever. Not these green paper bills that will all one day just be meaningless. And so the issue with money that scripture is addressing is that with sinful hearts, we find ourselves so in love with this present world that we spend and invest our resources only in this world with the end goal of of cashing it out all in this world, in this present life. But that is horribly and destructively short-sighted. It's foolishness. It's, It's wastefulness. 
And instead, God is calling us to look ahead with spiritual eyes and to use and to leverage all that He has given to us and invest in the life that is to come. To sow seeds now that will bear its full produce on the other side in the eternal age to come. That is to be a spiritually wise investor. And that's the essential point that this parable is conveying. It's well known for being rather difficult to understand, and maybe you've read it many times and you had a hard time understanding it. I'll be the first to admit that it, was, it wasn't really until this week I realized, oh, okay, that's what it's actually saying, because it's really easy to get lost in the details. But it's actually fairly simple once we see the big picture, which is that the trait and the characteristic that is being commended to us is this manager's foresight. It's his cunning ability to do all that he can to plan and prepare for the day he knows is inevitably coming. The parable begins as we're introduced to a rich man who had a manager, a steward, someone who managed the rich man's financial assets. It's like a property manager whose job is to manage, to manage the owner's house or an investment manager responsible for actively managing his client's stock portfolio. And this manager was, uh, in this parable, he was entrusted with what seems to be a vast portion of the rich man's possessions. But immediately we are told in verse 1 that charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. It's as if he was entrusted with the owner's property, but rather than putting it out on the rental market and faithfully collecting monthly rent on behalf of the owner, he was throwing house parties with it for his own personal friends, for his entertainment, while the owner was bleeding money. Same thing, perhaps, with his brokerage account. Rather than investing the money to earn returns for his master, this manager was spending it on himself, on who knows what. Uh, Fine dining, uh, personal travels. I mean, this man was a crook. He was a wicked manager. And in due time, everything was found out and formal accusations were brought to the master concerning this sleazy, worthless manager of his. And to no surprise, verse 2, he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear? Turn in the account for you can no longer be manager. He was fired from the job. Good riddance. And so he was asked to return the keys, as it were. Turn in all the accounts or what was left of it, at least. Now, from the initial firing to the eventual handing over of the accounts, there was some lag time since the fired manager would have been given some time to gather up uh, the books and give a final balance sheet on the state of all the remaining assets. And during this short period of time, the manager was confronted with the reality of his soon-to-be unemployment. And so verse 3, the manager said to himself, what am I going to do since I'm fired? I'm not strong enough to dig, meaning he's been working at this desk job And so he's lost all his uh, skills for work out in the field and the agricultural work of digging. And so once I'm fired, no one's going to hire me because I'm not good for anything anymore. And I'm ashamed to beg. Well, he just lost his job. He wasn't about to lose his pride and dignity too. And so with all this, he realized I'm toast. What am I going to do? I got to do something to prepare myself for what's about to happen. And all of a sudden in his desperation, a light bulb went off. In his head, in verse 4, I decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so 
summoning his master's debtors, people who took out a loan from his master. One by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, this was no small amount. This was about 875 gallons of oil, equivalent to three years of wages. That's how much you owe? Okay, take your bill and sit down and write 50. He just wrote off 50%. And then he said to another, verse 7, how much do you owe? And this guy said, a hundred measures of wheat. That's more than a thousand bushels of wheat. About 8,000 gallons. That's equivalent to eight years of wages. And he says, oh, you owe a hundred measures. All right, write 80. He just wrote off 20%. Now this is outrageous. 50% and 20% off on those amounts in loan. That's like a loan officer, your loan officer, suddenly deciding on a whim to take off a few hundred thousand dollars off your mortgage. Now, wouldn't that be nice? Now, what right did the manager have to do something like this? None. No ethical right, that's for sure. This, this was wrong. He had no approval. But he was still the manager because he hadn't yet turned into the account. He still had the keys of authorization. So what he did for these debtors was official. He still had access to the company letterhead, if you will. And with it, he issued an updated bill to reflect the change in amount. And if this worthless manager hadn't done enough damage to his master by wasting his possessions, he adds to his offenses this scheme. Now, why would the manager do something like this? It's because, again, he knew that he was toast. His job was lost. There was no way to appeal his termination. And once he packed his stuff and turned in the keys, he knew that no one would hire him with all that on his resume. And so his crafty little plan was this. Okay, there goes my job. But wait a minute. Whether I lost my master $1 million or whether I lost him $2 million is really not going to change the outcome. I'm getting fired anyway for misappropriation of company funds. And so... I might as well prepare myself for life after termination and do whatever I can to win some friends, to win their favor, so that I'll have a place to go and not starve in the streets. And so he decided to go out with a bang, misuse even more of company funds by writing off debts without approval in order to, get this, to make his master's debtors indebted to him. To make them unimaginably grateful to him, this sleazy manager. I mean, they had no idea what the backstory was or, or the unethical motive. All they know is that this angel of a man just wiped off a chunk of their massive loans. And they had the official receipts to show for it. And so when this manager turns in the account and is formally terminated, he'll go to these debtors and say, Hey man, I just got laid off. I need a place to stay. Can you help me out? And then the debtors will say, Friend, come. Of course. I owe you everything. You're our guardian angel. You saved our family. We'll do anything for you. This was the plan. Very crooked. Very unethical. And very clever. And when the master found out, verse 8, he commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master didn't commend him to say, well, you're a good manager after all. You're no longer fired. No, he was still fired. He was still a crook. But when the master heard what the manager had done, despite the schemes being further damaging to him, 
he couldn't help but almost chuckle in amazement. That is one sly fox. I got to hand it to him. That's pretty clever. I wish he would have used his cleverness to do the job well while he still had it. Instead of using it to save his own skin as he's being fired from it. But I got to call it what it is. That was some impressive thinking outside the box. Now, please don't take this parable as a suggestion to do something similar at your job. Uh, That would be disgraceful, and that would be to miss the point entirely. Because in telling this parable, notice Jesus is not commending the ethics or the morality of this manager. No, he says it plainly in verse 8. This guy was a dishonest manager, literally an unrighteous manager. And so Jesus is not commending his dishonesty, but he is commending simply his creativity, which was sparked by him facing the reality that was coming at him. He looked ahead to the day of reckoning and realized he needed to get his, all his gears turning and to use every ounce of his intellect and ingenuity to take drastic measures in preparation for that day. And so likewise, by analogy, Jesus is calling his disciples to think and live in light of that ultimate day of reckoning. When we will give an account to him, our master, of what we've done with all that he has stewarded to us. And so we are to use all our resources and position ourselves most readily for our eternal future. And Jesus begins his pointed instruction with a bit of a gentle rebuke in verse 8. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now the sons of this world, the sons of this age, are those who belong to this world only, the unbelievers. And sons of light, of course, are believers who have been enlightened by the gospel, people who belong to the heavenly world of eternity. And so Jesus is saying, look, guys, here's what I've noticed. Worldly people are far better about planning for their worldly future than heavenly people are about planning for their heavenly future. What's up with that? I mean, think about it. The non-Christian has no hope beyond this world, this immediate generation. And so when such a person is driven by the ambition to amass as much earthly riches for himself with his whole life being governed by the doctrines of Wall Street and spends all his energy on living for that 40, 50 year time horizon from his working years, he's actually living perfectly in accord with his worldview. It's perfectly consistent. He's being faithful with what he believes. It's consistent with his nature as belonging to this fallen world only because he has nothing else to live for. That's as far as his outlook goes, a hundred-year lifespan, give or take. And so within that scope of just this life on earth only, the typical non-believer appears to be quite forward-thinking. You've got to thinking ahead and planning ahead. He'll spend much time and money reading all kinds of literature on wise investing, learning how compounded interest works, tax advantage, retirement accounts, how they work. He'll seek out financial advisors, open a trust, and commit himself to all kinds of dexterity and know-how to put himself in the best position for that earthly future yet to come. 
And it's right to do this. It's wise. But the issue that Jesus is raising for the Christian is, it's not that those things are wrong. But why is earthly future often the only thing we think to actively prepare for and invest into? Why is there often such little thought on planning for eternity when that is our ultimate future? You see, it's not that God doesn't want you to think ahead and plan for the next stage in your life. No, it's a good thing. That's biblical wisdom. But the problem is that we're too short-sighted. That we're not looking far enough ahead. Yes, do that. Plan for your earthly retirement and more. Plan for that, but also actively plan for your eternal retirement, your eternal rest. But so often, that's just kind of an afterthought or something taken for granted, isn't it? And so that's why by comparison, the sons of this world, the sons of this age only, they seem far more shrewd and prudent in preparing for the future than the sons of the heavenly age do for their heavenly future. We look very lazy and unprepared. Like a man who spends the first 60 years of his life never saving a penny for retirement, who used every last penny of monthly net gain, saving up only for that year's lavish vacation or some new luxury vehicle. And people try to tell him, hey man, you need to plan for the future. And he'd say, I am, I am planning for the future. I'm saving up for some big spending a few months from now. No, 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 no. You need to think ahead in terms of decades, not months, please. I mean, at least if you're not going to invest it, just pay off your mortgage early. But he foolishly didn't listen. He couldn't see beyond the tunnel vision of just this narrow time frame of the here and now, of just that year, just a few months. And eventually he went into retirement with no preparation and was forced to live off sole dependence on Social Security for the rest of his life. Now we hear this and we think, oh my goodness, that's tragic. And it is. But by analogy, that's often how we live as believers. That's what Jesus is saying. We have a hard time seeing beyond life on earth. We may believe it in theory, but we don't believe it tangibly. And so we live like we're going to just waltz into eternity without preparation and we may end up with regrets. We're too short-sighted, you see. And as a result, we have little enthusiasm and fervor in actively and consciously seeking to invest what we have now to reap enormous returns in the age to come. Now, I'm not talking about just investing time or commitment, although those things are important. But keeping in context with this passage, I'm talking about investing money. Which brings us to this fascinating practical thought Do you realize that there is a way to use your earthly money now to actually grow your eternal riches? That there is a way to take your earthly money now and to sow it into the sea, uh, to sow it into the soil of this earth and have it bud and sprout 10,000 fold in the other side. Now, I I sound like one of those TV charlatans. Oh, so seeds of faith and you'll be rich. Call 1-800 and so on and so forth and give your credit card number. And of course, that all goes into the preacher's pocket. That's not what I'm talking about. But look at what Jesus is talking about in verse 9. 
I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now this unrighteous wealth, why does he call it that? Well, it's because it's the wealth that belongs to the age of unrighteousness. It's the wealth that belongs to this fallen world. It's just earthly money, U.S. dollars. It's not that the money in and of itself is unrighteous. Money is, is morally neutral. It's, it's amoral. It's neither good nor bad. It depends on how you use it. But that by these ordinary earthly means, Jesus says, you can make eternal friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. What does he mean? He means use your money invested into gaining friends for eternity, winning friends for eternity. Actively, cheerfully, creatively use what God has given you to contribute to the work of the gospel that more sinners might be brought to join in eternal fellowship with God. You know, the reality is that we live in a material world with limited resources. And so by the basic principles of economics, this necessitates the economy of money. Goods and services, it comes at a cost. Printing Bibles is not free, nor is it cheap. Missionaries can't just eat grass and flowers for a living. I mean, pastors are humans too. They have to feed their families. And so the ministry of the gospel on earth requires funding. God ordained it that way. Why? To give us the joy of partaking in his work. That these small earthly means can be used by faith to bring about eternal outcomes. Think about what Jesus is saying. Make friends for yourselves through the means of secular wealth so that when it fails, when it's all over, that they might welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Imagine that you finish your life on earth, Christian, and you step into eternity, into your heavenly home in the presence of God. And all of a sudden, one of the many citizens of heaven, once you get there, one of the many citizens, he comes up to you. He appears to be a believer from Kenya. And all of a sudden, he comes up to you, you just got there, and he gives you a hug with tears in his eyes. And you're thinking, gee, people in heaven are really friendly. And you're thinking, what's, what's going on? And he says to you, I've been waiting for you. And you think, well, I never knew you. What are you talking about? And he says, I've been waiting for you to get here. I never knew this while on earth. But when I got here, Jesus told me and showed me how it was because of all that money you gave to that Bible translation society that the word of God came to me when I was hopelessly lost in paganism. Humanly speaking, if not for you, I would not be here. Knowing the one true God through Jesus Christ. Thank you, friend. Welcome home, friend. What a glorious moment that would be. Through worldly riches, you gained an eternal friend with whom you will enjoy fellowship for all eternity. Or perhaps maybe even here at this church. 
We will have the joy of seeing more unconverted sinners saved unto Christ and witness their baptisms. I pray for that earnestly. But only in eternity they will find out. God will open all the books and reveal to them. By the way, we have no idea who gives how much, okay? That's, I have no idea. I, it's, all, it's between you and God. Okay, we, have, we don't know. Actually, only Cookie knows. So it's between you and God and Cookie, our treasurer. <laughs> but in eternity, God will open all the books and reveal to them. It was because of your faithful giving that you helped keep the lights on a little too brightly. And the rent was paid. The, the pastoral staff could live in what's one of the most expensive places in the world to live. And perhaps it's not for your cheerful giving and sacrifice. Maybe the doors of this local church in San Ramon would have been closed a while ago. And someone will come up to you in heaven and maybe someone you've never even met because this person was well after your time here at NBC. But I'll say to you, You know, there was I in San Ramon, lost in sin, desperately looking for a church. And God brought me here to NBC where I heard the gospel. And if it wasn't for your faithful investment, there wouldn't have been a here for God to bring me to. Thank you. It's because of your generosity that Christ found me and saved me from my sins. What an amazing thought that through such crude means of human currency so often used to fund the evil desires of men that it could be used, yea, it could be redeemed to serve the gracious will of God in saving sinners unto himself. What a privilege we've been given. What a stewardship we've been entrusted with. And so Jesus says in verse 10, the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest, literally unrighteous in very little, is also unrighteous in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here we see very clearly the mindset of stewardship. That what you have, Christian, is not your own. Your whole life belongs to Him. Your life and everything in it has been loaned to you by God. Do you understand it and do you believe it, Christian? You know, something that has helped me over the years is to learn to think like this. That I am simply the one who signs God's checks. That it's not my money. That it's his money, all of it. And he so kindly has authorized me to use some of it to provide for my personal needs, to provide for my family, and even to enjoy with thanksgiving the good things in this life that he has made to be enjoyed, 1 Timothy 4. But he has also tasked me with the responsibility to use some other portions of it to promote the work of the gospel in big ways like supporting ministries but also in small ways of building relationships with the non-believers he's placed in my life at 
the cost of great generosity and hospitality that by that I might win them to Christ and show them just how generous and kind he is. And you know what makes every bit of sacrifice worth it? It's knowing that every penny of seed money sown into investing in eternal matters is preparing and growing eternal treasures. Now listen, none of this is saying that we earn our salvation through money. That would be blasphemy of the highest order. We are saved by trusting in Jesus' work of salvation alone, embracing the riches of his mercy and grace. But the matter that's said before us is that as a heaven-bound child of God, how we spend the rest of our days on earth is a test of how much we will be entrusted with in the age to come. That those who are found as faithful stewards who so wisely and even creatively utilize what, what, what they were given for the sake of the gospel, even if they had a little, you don't have to be rich to be faithful. You just have to be faithful to be faithful, whether you have little or a lot. But that those who use that little or a lot to be faithful stewards of the gospel, oh, they will be receiving truckloads of heavenly riches to continue to glorify God with them well into the millennia and millennia of eternity because they proved to be wise managers of the master's possessions while on earth. And so they will continue to be wise managers of the master's possessions in eternity. Look, some of you, some of you love investing. You love the thrill of generating more value from the principle. It excites you. It's a passion. Don't be ashamed. That's a gift from the Lord. And have you considered that in eternity, you will continue to exercise that passion and skill for His glory in an unimaginably grander way, provided that you are found faithful with the lesser things while on earth. What's it going to be like? I don't know. I think we'll be building things. We'll be growing things. We'll be given the privilege to be instruments of expanding God's reign, perhaps to the edge of the cosmos. Who knows? But all I know is that heaven's going to be exciting like you can never fathom. Look, I mean, some of you, some of you guys are like little beavers. You love building up the walls of your little den. You're, you're wired that way. You're storing away and keeping inventory of everything. That's not a bad thing. God made you that way. He's the one that made you beaver-like. And he thinks you're cute. <laughs> and he's calling you to leverage your little beaver skills in building up the walls of his eternal kingdom to find joy and excitement in using your skills to fill up the storehouses of heaven. And this short life on earth is a test to see how much more he will entrust you with for the heavenly work he has prepared for the next life. Now, how should you do it in your life now? How is God calling you to leverage your skills for his church? I don't know. You figure it out. You figure out the specifics. Get prayerfully creative. That's the point of this parable. A shrewdness which comes from foresight and planning for the future. This is the exciting purpose of life in Christ. We are here to sow seeds to build up our everlasting home, the storehouse of true riches. But if you can't be faithful with the little things of how you handle green paper bills while on earth, why would anyone entrust greater things to you later? 
And listen, if, if hearing all of this, your mindset is, well, you know, I'm really not interested. I don't really care. As long as I get into heaven, I'm fine. I just, I just want to escape hell and I don't care for heavenly treasures. Look, if that's you, you don't care for God. You don't know God. You don't care for true heaven, which is to be in His presence forever. You don't belong to Him. Because your thinking reveals that you are enslaved to the God of money and possessions and earthly riches. And you need to hear Jesus' words clearly in verse 13. That no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't do both. You can't serve God and money. You know, in the Old Testament, the spiritual danger and temptation for the people of Israel that they fell into time and time again was actually, it was rarely just pure idolatry, utterly forsaking God and and converting to total paganism, exclusively worshiping false idols. It wasn't like that. Because actually, Israel fell into the deception and temptation of what's called syncretism. It's a fancy word for saying you can worship God and worship Baal. Bow down and sacrifice to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, and sacrifice to Molech. And we'll see this very clearly on Thursday when we study 1 Kings. But that was the lie. You can do both. It was told to them. And they tried, they attempted to, and they destroyed themselves in doing so. And it was shown that they utterly despised God. And in the same way, it's the same deception that enslaves many in the church. That they think that they can serve God and money. Now, of course, we're very quick to justify ourselves by saying, well, I I do serve God. Look at how I serve in the church doing this or that. But be very careful. That's exactly how the Pharisees thought. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were actually lovers of money, they heard these things and they ridiculed them. But Jesus said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. They played their religious part and they were well-respected persons in their little uh, faith community. And so no one would ever suspect that these religious leaders or these people serving in these areas, that, that they could have such darkness in their hearts. But God knows the hearts. Jesus was implying to the Pharisees, listen, you look down and despise the whores in the streets, but God sees your hearts whoring after money and possessions. Men may praise your appearance, but God sees the true abomination of idolatry deep inside. Church, God knows your heart. And more importantly, God cares about your heart. That's why He is only pleased with a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9-7, who gives freely as an act of worship. Not someone who gives begrudgingly, whose fingers have to be pried off from the money they hold dear. Listen, if that's you, don't give it. You're, you're enslaved to money. 
You think God cares about your money in the end? You think God needs your money and that's why he calls us to give it? Do you really think that the power of the gospel depends on nickels and quarters and dimes and grain paper bills? If he chose to, God could have ordained for all his people to be saved instantaneously. But God ordained for the gospel to be carried through such ordinary means, through such human means. Why? To give us the privilege and the blessing of reigning with Him. You see, God's command to invest our earthly resources into the work of His kingdom, it's so rooted in His intimate love for His people. So much so that He desires to share His glory with us through Christ. Because all of this is a foretaste of what will be fully realized at His coming, as Jesus promised in Revelation 3.21, to Him who overcomes, I will grant Him the right, not just to enter into my presence, but to sit with me on my throne. How about that? And it says later in Revelation 22 verse 5, that the Lamb and His servants, they will reign forever and ever. See, the call to sacrificial wise stewardship is an invitation to share in the glory of His reign through His power and rule in the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's God saying to us, little child, dear child, come, let me, let, let me give you a little taste of what it's like. Come to my throne, sit on my lap. Place your little hand here with me on my heavenly scepter. I'll let you wield it with me. I'll let you reign with me. But only when you let go of holding on to earthly riches Will your hands be free to take up this royal privilege? This is how much God loves His people. What tender, affectionate love from the Father for His little children. And it is this love that undergirds and carries forth every command from His lips, even the command to surrender your earthly treasures, to use them to serve Him. Church, let's not be servants of money. But let us serve God with our money, with every ounce of His belongings that He has entrusted to us. And may it be that the glories and the promise of eternal riches that await us, may that be what drives us with a passion to be faithful as stewards. Let me close with a quick word to those here who do not belong to God by faith. We've been talking so much about eternity. Listen, eternity is real. And you know it. You know how foolish and empty is the idea that this life is it and after this you're just going to be annihilated out of existence. That's whack. And you know that the great day of reckoning is coming to you. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and so the Spirit returns to God who gave it. 
You will have to stand before God one day and give an account of your life to Him. But you are totally unprepared for that day as it is now because you have no answer for your sins. You've taken the life that God has given you and wasted it on serving yourself, living for your own pride and greed and selfish aims. Friend, do not step into eternity without Christ as your Savior. You will miserably regret it for the next 10,000 years and beyond. Confess your sin to Him and put your trust in what He has done to fully pay for sin by His life, death, and resurrection. Prepare yourself for that day of reckoning, not by your own works, but by trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. And when you come to Him in faith, He will receive you as His own and He will show you and He will lead you to the true happiness of living the rest of your days to serve Him, the most kind and loving Master who never calls His people to give what He hasn't already given to us first and will continue to give even more and more of Himself for ages to come. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given of himself to us that he might redeem us from our bondage to sin that we might serve you on your holy mountain. And we thank you for reminding us what a joy that is. Lord, who are we? Frail creatures of the dust that you would take us as your children and that you would, that it would please you to seat us with you on your throne. That we might share in your work and in your reign and in the power of the gospel at work throughout the world. Oh Lord, help us to see with the eyes of faith what a joy it is and empower us to live fervently, thankfully, for the privilege we've been given to live as your faithful stewards on earth. Father, we thank you also for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which you have given to us to continually remind to us that our relationship with you was and is and always will be that of receiving your kindness and your love as once for all demonstrated by our Lord Jesus who gave of himself to us, his body broken for us, his blood spilled for us. And so as we prepare to receive these ordinary elements, help, help us to receive them by faith and to receive it with gratitude and may it render the highest praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.